Hi there, and welcome to On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to be with you, as always. Great to speak with interesting conversationalists who have a lot to say, including today's wonderful guest, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. Quickly, if you'd like to connect with me, email address Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at chartproductions.com. That is our home base studio. Also on Twitter, at Jordan WBZ, and on Facebook, it's The Jordan Rich Show. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, letting people know about the show, and for subscribing and downloading and rating and reviewing this podcast. I really appreciate it. Today's guest is an old friend, Michael Starr. He's been writing for the New York Post, covering TV and more since 1995. Mike and I have uh, become friendly over the years, having done many, many interviews on radio. He's written many fascinating, well-researched biographies of such personalities as Art Carney, Joey Bishop, Bobby Darren, Red Fox, Raymond Burr, and Ringo Starr. He also did the filmography of Peter Sellers. But today, he's back with his latest, which was just released, on one of the most enigmatic figures in entertainment and one of my favorite people because I'm such a Star Trek geek. We're talking about William Shatner, the subject of Mike's new biography, and it's fascinating. So if you're ready, I certainly am. Let's beam him up. Michael Starr, welcome, and it's time to go on Mike. Michael, it's great to chat with you again. I don't know how many times we did so on my radio show over the years, but uh, you're always a delightful guest, and uh, your research is impeccable, my friend. Congratulations. Thanks, Jordan. I, I appreciate that. It's always, it's always fun to do when you have a subject like uh, William Shatner to write about. There's a lot there. <laughs> well, I have a personal love for the characters he's played, and I've interviewed him two or three times myself. I've been in his company, but not to the extent that you've researched this guy. My goodness. Let's start with the fact that he didn't talk to you is that unusual for a character you're bioing? It depends on the situation. I mean, obviously, if the person I'm writing about is dead, it doesn't matter. But uh, it, it, in my case, no, it's not unusual. And I, I think I had interviewed Shatner about eight or nine years ago for the, for the New York Post, where I covered television. He had a uh, show on then on the bio channel called Raw Nerve. It was mm -hmm. a really good talk show. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that one. I do, yes. Um, but we spoke about that, but I think... You know, the tone changes when you find out somebody's writing a book about your life um, and you can't control the narrative. I mean, you can't control the narrative to the extent if you agree to do an interview, but mm. I, I think anybody knows that, you know, the, 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 hopefully the person who's writing about you is going to do more research and they're going to come up with their own conclusions. And so I think in that sense, it's not so unusual. Um, and as I said in the book, when I did approach him and tell him that I had you know, signed this deal and all that, and approached his camp. They told me they were they were actually were pretty nice about it. They just said right. he has an overcommitted production schedule. You know, trans, translating into bug off. In the case of Shatner, and I know enough about him, your book goes into great detail. In the case of Shatner, he might be the busiest, almost ninety-year-old I've ever met. Yeah, when I when I when I first started, to th even when I first started to think about this, and then when I started doing it, I was like, how am I going to sum up like? As I'm writing, you know, you know, the, technically, as I'm writing this book, he's doing other stuff. He's signing new deals, and you, you, you can't get, obviously, can't include everything, and that mm. would probably be really boring to a reader. So you try to, I mean, I anyway, I tried to sort of pick and choose the really important personal and professional aspects of his life. Um, you know, you can't write about every commercial he did, or every music, every album he cut, or every. You, you, you try to sum it all up and put it into context. I mean, let's face it, if somebody's writing about your life or my life, I don't think somebody would want to read about what we did on Tuesday at 8 o'clock <laughs> in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you, you have to sort of get to the 
milestones, and there certainly are plenty of milestones in William Shatner's personal life and his professional career. Michael, let's start with Shatner in the early years. Growing up in Montreal, young Jewish boy, young Jewish teenager, beset by bullies and dealing with wanting to be accepted. This was very much who he was. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Jordan. I mean, I, he, he's, he attributed a lot of that to his mother being very a very forceful personality, his mother Anne, and, and uh, she gave elocution lessons to kids in the neighborhood and, and sort of, I don't know if pushed is the right word, but she, let's say, convinced him. He, he, was a, he went to the Montreal Children's Theater at a young age, was trained as an, as an actor as much as you could be trained as a child, and was doing radio, radio plays on, tel- on, on radio as a kid. Mm. He was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. So he always had that sort of theatrical background, um, which he was balancing at the same time with trying to, I guess, grow up, quote-unquote, a normal kid in, in, in Montreal in the, in the 30s and 40s. Um, as you mentioned, he, he was uh, Jewish and, and encountered his share of anti-Semitism in Montreal at that time, um, which was not unusual, I think, for, for right. uh, you know any kid growing up anywhere in, in North America. Um, but he did talk about that um, in later years and, and like pretending not to be going to Hebrew school so the kids wouldn't beat him up. At the same time, he was, he was a good athlete. Um, he was involved. He had a lot of kids, a lot of friends in the neighborhood um, of, of different ethnicities. And, um, you know, led, led what would, you know, from, from you and I, from our perspective, a quote-unquote pretty normal childhood if you take away the fact that he was doing radio plays and, 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 and acting in theatrical productions at such a young right. age. I thought it was kind of interesting that in college he was uh, involved in the radio club or radio station, and uh, <laughs> similar to me, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't realize there was such a connection to radio, but I should have, knowing of his age. That was most interesting. So he grows up in the tough streets of Montreal as a young guy studying acting, getting into the acting thing. And of course, you talk a lot about what critics have said about his acting, which is very uh, punctuated, let's put it that way. His dialogue <laughs> is very punctuated. And, and anybody worth his salt can do a great Captain Kirk impression. You know what I'm talking about. Talk about his training. Talk about how he learned his craft and early on. Well, uh, as we mentioned, he, he did do a lot of, of work in the radio uh, as, a, as a, a kid and then as a teenager. And then in college, took part in several plays. And, and they, they had, uh, he went to McGill University. They had the Red, White, and Blue Review, uh, which put on spoofs and, and, and shows. And then from that, I mean, his his father was in the garment business and, and wanted Bill, as they called him. You know, mm-hmm. they, they wanted wanted Bill to follow in his footsteps, and was very upset when when Bill told him that. Well, you know, I really p- would prefer to to choose an acting career. He graduated with a degree in in economics, but if you believe what he what he says, he barely graduated. You know, didn't go to class very much. You know, had help mm-hmm. with his tests and and all, and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but really was interested in pursuing an acting career. And when he graduated from college, his, his father said, okay, well, I'll give you a little bit of money. We'll give you a year and we'll see where it goes. And he ended up um, pursuing, pursuing an acting career uh, at the Stratford Festival in, in, in Stratford, Ontario, in Canada, mm. doing Shakespeare with quite an esteemed uh, number of colleagues, including Christopher Plummer, who, as we know, would go on to be, become a very famous actor. So he was really, you know, to sum it up, a a classically trained Shakespearean actor for the most part. Uh, And and that in turn led to 
roles on television on the Canadian Broadcasting Company, um, not only just in, in Shakespearean roles, but other roles, comedies, dramas. And he was also, in those days, actually he continued this throughout his life. He, he wrote a lot. I mean, he, he's written several books, you know, quote-unquote written several books, but yes. he probably has written more than yes. that would describe, because he was writing TV shows for the Canadian Broadcasting Company, he was writing radio plays, and he met his future wife, Gloria, in, in, in an episode of a TV show he had written for the CBC uh, in the mid-50s. So he was very involved in in... in in the production end of it and in the acting end of it. And he talks in the book about, there's a quote from him about how much he loved hearing the whir of the TV camera and huh. the red light beckoning him in. You can almost hear him saying that, you know, and the, the warm embrace of the audience. And so he really did uh, have quite a, an experienced career, both in TV and in radio, uh, even before he came to the U.S. And then he, he, he continued that, obviously. And then sort of segued from uh, uh, the stage in Canada to, to coming to Broadway as a very young man in the late 50s. Susie Wong, right? Was that one yeah, of Yeah, World of Susie yeah. Wong. And even before that, when he was, uh, he played Unku Samusei, I forget how you, you know, some, in some Shakespeare, he was mm. a very minor character in some Shakespearean play um, that he came with a troupe in from Canada to, to perform it on Broadway. It didn't last very long. But yes, The World of Susie Wong was his first major role. On Broadway, and the play did the play did well. I mean, it ran for over a year, and and as you know, in the in the sort of the lens of hindsight in 2020, he did not get along with his co-stars. He didn't get along with France Noyen, who was his leading woman, or Ron Randall, who was one of the one of the supporting players. They had a fist fight backstage, and you can sort of see, you know, as the Shatner that we know now, when you look back at those days and through that lens. You sort of see, oh, okay, you know, he was having problems with his co-stars even <laughs> then, you know, as a young man, and that would that would, as we know now, continue um, on some of his future. Right. Not not to get too geeky here, but Franz Noyen appeared on Star Trek, an episode. It was a great episode because she played this bratty, spoiled queen or princess, and Shatner was uh, <laughs> well, Shatner basically. Let's take a look before Star Trek because uh, he appeared in a lot of. Uh, episodic television, including, of course, two episodes of The Twilight Zone, Outside right the Window, 20, feet. which has become a cult classic, as so many of those have. But what was most interesting to me, and, and you're such a great researcher, is in those days, your, your actors had to work hard, and you, they weren't making millions of dollars, even being on national TV. They worked from job to job, and you know he had a family to support. So it wasn't, uh, and we'll talk about his post-Star Trek troubles, but it wasn't uh, all the, the glitter and glamour of Hollywood right away for him. No, he, he, he was what, what they call in, in, in England a jobbing actor. He was, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right, he was sort of jumping from job to job, TV, uh, episodic TV show to episodic TV show. I mean, we, we, we look back now at, those, at the two Twilight Zone episodes you mentioned, one with the other one was called Nick of Time. Right. Yes, they're classics, but I mean, at the time, he it was it was a job for him. He was, you know, he he probably didn't even have that many. He didn't even seem to have that many memories of doing them late, years later when he was asked about it. Once they became quote unquote classics, I mean, the show itself was doing well at the time, but it was a job, and he 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 did. He came in. He he learned his lines. He did the, he did the job very well. Um, 
but you know, it was all, it was all those Playhouse ninety and you know, Splits Theater and and all these weekly anthology shows on on NBC, ABC, and CBS, the only networks we had back then. But he was known as one of those dependable guys you could you could call upon to come in, do a good job, yeah, learn the script. And, and come in, hit, hit his mark, do his thing, and then move on to the next job. I believe he was considered, as you say, for a couple of uh, leads and shows, the Alexander the Great thing that never happened. Right, with Adam West. They shot a whole pilot for that. <laughs> Which would have been cool. <laughs> you can I, only imagine, right? I can imagine. Uh, in terms of the, the career, let's do that first, and I want to talk about his personal journey. The Star Trek thing happens, and I'm a, I, you're talking to Mr. Geek here, because I know all about Jeffrey Hunter, I know all about the casting, and the... <laughs> And the double pilots and all that kind of stuff. But right. Roddenberry found him to be the right guy for the role. Did he know it at the time? Did he have any inkling, do you think, that this was going to be what it was? Or did any of them? I don't think any of them did. I, I, I think it's, it's very unusual to, to I think, to have that sense. Of, because I, I've done many interviews with actors, and I've, and I've asked them sort of the same question you've asked me. Did you know at the time? Mm. And the, the general answer is, you know, you know yeah, we, we knew the script was good. We, you know, we all got along or didn't, whatever. You know, we had good chemistry. But no, I mean, you know, you, nobody knew. And I don't think anybody at, at that time knew that what Star Trek was going to become. I don't think, I mean, let's, as you know, as you well know, uh, Jordan, it only lasted three seasons, right? right? And, and right. it was a struggle to get it renewed every season. There were always threats that it was going to be canceled. And, uh, you know, they would look at these arcane numbers. Well, it did really well in Iowa City, you know, at, at 8 <laughs> yes. o'clock. So to, to, to make sure it was renewed. So I don't think anybody knew at the time. Except the letter writers, the few fans who decided to make it a point to get the network to pay attention. And that that's really what saved Star Trek, I guess, as you point out. And uh, and it was years afterwards, the doldrums for people like Shatner. He particularly, uh, you, you say he lived in a trailer. I mean, he really had a rough go. He had a divorce. He wasn't exactly Captain Kirk uh, enjoying his retirement. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, yes, he, he he was driving around. He was doing you know dinner theater, uh, vocal stage productions, any yeah. kind of episodic TV he could get, um, whether it was good or bad. You know, cheap cheapo, you know, B level movies, uh, because at, until the show really caught on in syndication, it, well, yes, it was it was sort of a dead end for him. Uh, as it was for, if you look at, you know, Adam West, uh, oh, sure. who you mentioned before, you, you know, you, you get sort of pigeonholed into these roles. But I, I, one thing that I always admired, that I still admire about Shatner, is he, he kind of refused, he refused to be pigeonholed. Like, yes, the industry wanted him to be this way, but he would just, he just kept on working, kept on working, different kinds of jobs, different kinds of roles. And, you know, I mean, he had to, is what he did for a living. And as you mentioned, he, you know, he, he had gotten divorced from his first wife. He had alimony. He had three daughters to support. So he, you know, he had to work, obviously. But I think in his own mind, he he believed that that was going to change, and and he mm. would overcome that. And he had more to offer than just James T. Kirk. I mean, listen, as you know, they were doing a cartoon version of Star Trek at one time, and that was when the, his career wasn't really going that well. Um, and. The same could be said for Leonard Nimoy. I think his career was a little smoother after Star Trek, but probably not much more smoother, you know, than, mm. than his friend Bill Shatner's career. But um, he worked hard at it, and he just he just kept on plugging away. And uh, history was on his side. 
uh, when, sure. when Star Trek became so huge in syndication and found a whole new audience and people who rediscovered it and college kids and it just took off from the, literally you know took off from there and uh, then we had the Star Trek movies which put him back on the movie oh, yes. screen yes. that helped his career I mean it, it, people forget I think and, and certainly I did before I was you know that he had you know T.J. Hooker and Barbary Coast, which another show. Which I remember West, Barbary Coast very well. I saw every episode because Captain Kirk was in it. I mean, that's right, what. But right. but you're right. And then later, of course, and we we have so much that we don't plan on getting to because the book has it all. But the Denny Crane years. He's in his 70s, winning Emmys for this comedic turn and uh, and all of the post Star Trek stuff. Let's go back for a bit because there's so much fascinating stuff you have in the book too about reaction from castmates and and others in his life and. Like all of us, he's a complex individual. He's got his his high points and his low points. But the interesting feedback from the cast, mostly of Star Trek over the years, and this has been consistent, and you just basically confirmed it all, is that he had a lot of folks who really found him to be uh, uncomfortable to work with. And yet, uh, and that goes for Jimmy Doohan and and certainly George Takei, and yet he always thought, I got along with everybody. (laughs) He says that all the time. Right. You know, whether that's just, uh, a defense mechanism, yeah. and, and uh, you're right. He has at times, like I think in his later years, upon reflection, had said a few times, "Well, maybe I could have been a little, you know, a little more cognizant of how other people felt, and this and that." On the other hand, you know, he was the well. It, it was a bone of contention between he and Leonard Nimoy, but he was the star of the show and right. had to carry it, had to learn all that dialogue, which he explains that. It, that sort of um, added to the way that he enunciated his lines because he was trying to remember what he had to say. <laughs> yes, so, I thought that was fascinating. To remember, yes, my next line, like you know, that that that, that was his. That's how he always explained it. But right. so there was a lot of pressure on him to carry the show, and perhaps he could have handled it better. Uh, perhaps there were things in his personality that did not lend themselves to playing well in the sandbox with others. He liked the attention, obviously, I, I think, as people who read the book will find out. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, but you, you're right, because you don't, you don't hear, especially for that particular show, they were, everybody wrote their memoirs except for, I think, uh, uh, DeForest Kelly. I don't think he ever wrote a book. Right, right. He was all, the only one. All the others yeah. who did write their own books, <clears throat> even Leonard Nimoy pointed to Shatner's behavior and the fact they found him very selfish and he would huddle with the director to, to push them out of camera view. I don't know whether or not that's true or not. I uh, Who knows? But So they all sort of had the same take, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, um, yeah, he did not seem to be a very great person to work with uh, at that time. And, Michael, as you point out, take a look at somebody like Henry Winkler. He did that goofy show where they travel overseas, he and a bunch of old-timers, uh, George Foreman. Folks like that really found him delightful, and, and maybe it's just age. Maybe he's mellowed. Uh, I interviewed him, I remember, uh, back in the late 90s, and I must have caught him on a bad day. This was a phone interview. I didn't catch him on a great day. He must have done 15 interviews that day. <laughs> then I also re-interviewed him or did a, another talk with him in about 2014 or 2015, and he was delightful. And, uh, you know, we all have our up days and our down days, but uh, getting back to the, the question, of friendship and loyalty. Uh, he and Nimoy had an interesting relationship over the years, uh, hot and cold, but to the end, you know, 
Bill Shatner said that he he loved Leonard and even wrote a book about him. Yet he did not attend Leonard Nimoy's funeral. I remember that was a controversial time. Comment yeah, a little bit on their relationship. I I think there was, I, I think yes, uh, Shatner has said that he considered Nimoy his his quote unquote his brother. They were very very days away. I think or a week away as far as age. Uh, both Jewish, both both grew up in, with in, with similar backgrounds. Right. Nimoy in the in the Boston area and Shatner in Montreal. Uh, I, I think they had a lot in common, and and there was a lot separating them. I think their, their personalities weren't quite exactly the same. Uh, and I think when they first came in direct contact with each other in the, in the Star Trek days, there was a lot of competition between the two of them. There's a story in the book about. You know, Shatner was convinced he was the star of the show, but when it when it first when Star Trek first started on NBC, it was Nimoy who was getting the bulk of the fan mail. People loved Spock, the years, the whole thing, and Shatner was upset about that. And he actually called a meeting with with Gene Roddenberry, the show's creator. It was just the three of them, and you know, metaphorically backed him into a corner and said, "You know, I, you need to tell us who is the real star of the show. Is it Kirk?" Or is it Spock? Mm. Roddenberry did say Kirk. I don't know, you know, whether he really meant it or not, and I think that mollified Bill Shatner a little bit. But there was intense competition among uh, between those two. There, they were they performed their acting styles very different. But yes, they did form a friendship that, as a lot of friendships in life, have have their ups and downs uh, through the years. Leonard Nimoy warned Shatner before he married his third wife, Noreen, that yes. he was an alcoholic because he himself was an alcoholic. And right. he, he said, I see the warning signs, you know, be careful, you, you, you might want to think twice about this. Shatner didn't listen, he was in love with this woman and he married her and it ended tragically. But even after that, they they, they worked together. I, I, Nimoy directed an episode of T.J. Hooker. They did, Obviously, they did the movies together, they appeared together at, on talk shows and at conventions and so I think they did have a very nice relationship that at times had its down moments. And, and as you mentioned, when Leonard Nimoy passed away, Shatner took a lot of guff for not showing up mm. at the funeral. He said he was at a, a charity event that he couldn't get away from. But, you know, you think to yourself, come on. Yeah. It, People would understand. <laughs> he's the kind of individual, and I, and I don't uh, criticize him. I'm just pointing this out. He's the kind of individual who is so larger than life and so happy to tweet about everything that he sets himself up for these kinds of attacks at times, I think. And I'm not advising him or, or in in the family circle, but it, it seems to me that he's he's got this streak of danger that he wants to push the envelope in personal endeavors with friends and in and, and Hollywood. And speaking of Twitter, I mean, I follow him and he's a riot. He's hysterical. An octogenarian who doesn't certainly act his age at all. I mean, uh, where does this come from? This where, where does this all stem from? Do you think his? I, I think there's a, and he actually said this recently. I'm paraphrasing, but I think he was talking about he 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 used George Burns as a role model. You know, Burns said, "I'm you know I want to be booked into the Palladium when I'm 100 right. or something." I think Shatner has a a fear. Of his mortality, yeah, and I and I think he's one of those guys that are people who must work because it, it keeps him going. And if he stops working, then that's it. I, I think that's. I think. I think. I'm not a psych. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst, but I think that's how his mind works. That he just, the more he works, the longer he'll live, 
and and the more he'll contribute, and it'll it'll just keep him going. And that that could very well be true. You know, you mm. read, you hear stories all the time. Maybe even people you know they retire and then they just that's it. <laughs> but he loves. I think he's got such a strong work ethic, and just can't imagine not being a part of the discussion, not being a part of social media, and you know, in in, in the in the twenty first century, not being a part of the entertainment world and part of. I mean, he's picking fights on Twitter as they're in the book there, you know, with with library librarian groups and yes. fans of other sci-fi shows who, who don't even know him. <laughs> right. But he does Some it in a funny Shatner way, which is also kind of interesting. It's so fascinating that you talk about his uh, connection with his own mortality. I've read every book he's written on the subject of Star Trek, and I've noticed that's a theme that runs throughout. He's died in several films. He's come back, but he's died <laughs> as Captain Kirk. And I think I think a lot of it, in, including the fact that he's done a lot of documentaries where he talks with scientists and philosophers and religious scholars about the universe and about the, the physics of it all and the uh, the mystery of life. He, he seems to be captivated by this. And uh, let's go back for a second. And, and again, we're jumping around. But Nereen was the fourth wife or third? number three. Three. He just recently got divorced again. But Nareen was actually from this area, from where I'm broadcasting here in the Boston area originally. And as you point out, you know, she was a lovely gal, but a very serious alcoholic and had drug issues. And then you had the famous, infamous pool incident. He has been a man who has fallen hard for the ladies over the years, hasn't he? Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, to, to the extent, maybe not, you know... Yes, several times to the extent of asking them to marry him, but you know, as, as mentioned in the book, there there were a few paternity suit, uh, patern- not paternity. Um, uh, what do you call when you when you're sued for uh, like not marrying somebody but promising to take care of them? There were a few of those lawsuits along the oh, way with some right. young women who he promised to take care of and then didn't. Uh, but he was, you know, listen, he had a, he had a reputation of, uh, with the ladies in in those days, as a lot of uh, Hollywood people did. Sure, I don't sure. think he was alone in that respect. I don't, nobody was ever accusing him of anything, you know, wrong as far as uh, in the Me Too, you know, days. Uh, nowadays, there was nothing of that nature. No, 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 no. no. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he did fall hard for the ladies, and he was aware of Noreen's uh, problem. Uh, I don't think it was something that he didn't want to face. I think he knew about it, but mm. he was just so in love with her that he, he wanted, maybe he felt he could straighten her out and, and change her ways. Um, didn't want to hear it from Leonard Nimoy when he told him that, you know, you better be careful. Yeah. And she was a lot younger than he was, as were his last three wives. Uh, and maybe that was something else that kept him going. It was sort of an injection of youth into his life uh, that would that could, you know, rub off on him, perhaps. But yeah, that ended tragically, and, and they weren't even married that too, very, very long. And uh, he came home one night, found her floating naked in the pool, and it was too late. She she had been on drugs and, and uh, no. drunk and right. fell into the pool and broke her neck, and that was it. Very, very sad. Uh, it's interesting, as we talk uh, and record this podcast, uh, Shatner's very healthy and very much with us at the age of 89, approaching 90 this year. I think he's achieved 
uh, what many actors would hope to achieve, a sense of immortality because of the iconic roles he's played, mostly Captain Kirk. I believe he's come to terms with playing that role and, and adopting that role as his alter ego because he's written several books about his experiences. Do you think there came a time when he just said, hey, I, I can't ignore this anymore. They're, they're hiring me and paying me millions and hundreds of millions of people adore me as this character. Do you think he had a, a sea change when things started to go right for, for him? Yeah, I, I, I think one, one moment you can point to is, and it's referenced in the book, is that famous uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live sketch when he was hosting the show, you know, like, get a life. Get a life. You know, get a life, get a life people. And I, but he was poking fun at them, but he was also sort of poking fun at the whole phenomenon. And I think he's, he did come to embrace that, uh, as did Leonard Nimoy, who wrote a book, I Am Not Spock, then I Am Spock. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, as, as a lot of uh, several actors who came of age in that generation on television, look, look at Adam West. I think he, he embraced Batman. He didn't do as much as Shatner did with his career, but he came to embrace, okay, well, you know, is it the worst thing in the world to be thought of as the Cape's Crusader? And I think Shatner eventually realizes, is it the worst thing to be thought about as the star of one of the you know most revered television shows and movie franchises in pop culture history? Mm. Not such a bad thing. No. And he, and he did embrace it, and he started going to the fan conventions and, and writing books, as you mentioned, about his experience and memoirs about working on the set. His daughter uh, wrote a book about, I think it was the Star Trek movie he directed, uh, sort of documenting the day-by-day travails on the set. So he did, and does now, embrace that legacy Mm. much more, I think, than he did in the beginning, because in the beginning, I think it was, as we said before, it was a a job for three seasons on a forgettable sci-fi show, and then it wasn't so forgettable anymore. Exactly. And one of the things that strikes me as as I've watched him over so many years in public life and uh, on his various programs is, even as Captain Kirk in the early days, there was that twinkle in the eye. There was that sense of goofiness and humor. And uh, th- on the set, that uh, he would often pull pranks and you know try to crack people up and all that. And I think that's what's most endearing about him today is that it doesn't seem as though he take. He's not afraid to be made fun of <laughs> and make fun of himself. Right. right which I right. think, which I think of all qualities of actors, is most endearing. Yes. Uh, self-realization is a, is a great thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you can embrace your identity, I mean, nobody really knows what he's like. I mean, we, we all know Bill Shatner professionally, what right, he's done in his right, career right. and, you know, in his life and everything. And we don't know what he's like personally. I mean, yes, we, we, some of us, including you and myself, have had interactions with him, you more than, than me. But again, he's, 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 he's giving these interviews. He's, playing a role as sure. an actor or something. Sure. And if you catch him on a bad day, okay, well, maybe there's a little bit of humanity that's coming through, but we all have the good days and the bad days. But yeah, I think, I think he has embraced his legacy. Um, some other, I, I, I wrote a book years ago about Art Carney, who used to complain about Ed Norton. He embraced his legacy. I think generally most people, actors or actresses who play these iconic roles eventually come around to the fact that, you know what, it ain't such a bad thing. I brought joy to millions of people, and if that's what they want to remember me for, great, because the majority of us aren't remembered for anything. (laughs) 
<laughs> so. Well, you're going to be remembered as one of the great biographers of the pop culture and and the the 60s on up uh, actors and personalities. Peter Sellers, you mentioned Art Carney, Bobby Darin, Raymond Burr, Red Fox, Ringo, and now, of course, this great new book called Shatner with a classic William Shatner pose from the looks like the 60s. And by the way, we haven't even mentioned hair pieces. There, I, I couldn't believe you said there were websites dedicated and devoted to the various hair pieces that he's worn over the years. Yeah, there was a site. It's it's defunct now, but it was, you can find it if you look around. It's called Shatner'sToupay.com. This website was very intricate. Like it would basically study different hair pieces that he wore through the years, and they would make have commentary. Like, okay, well, he filmed this episode of Mission Impossible in 1969. His career wasn't going well, so if you look at the hair piece, you can tell that it's not <laughs> up to snuff as the ones he wore two years later when he was doing, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, and he's never. He's never admitted to it publicly, right, as far right. as I know. He doesn't but have again, to. that's another thing that he's joked about because he ended one of his books as saying, you know, well, I'm paraphrasing, but well, you know, do I wear a hairpiece? And that, that was like the end. That was like the last line. Or something, <laughs> so. So he's embraced. He's embraced it to an extent. He actually, like, uh, if if I may be so bold, I think he looks best right now. Whatever he does, he's using he now is the is the one for him. I tell you, he looks great. He's, he he's does. Looked, he's looked great for a while now, and um, yeah. you know, let's let's hope he keeps on chugging along. And, Absolutely. And, Keep on, keep, keep on keeping on and doing the TV shows and the movies and whatever else. And spokesperson. And oh, and, and we didn't even talk about Priceline. But we that's didn't even talk. Folks, trust me, when Michael is the best. I mean, every squib of information you wanted to know about Priceline or about Rescue 911, it's all in here. You're not going to miss out on anything. I told you we wouldn't cover it all. But as always, I, I'm so glad you reached out to me. I'm still here doing podcasts and radio occasionally, and you're always a welcome guest, Michael. And uh, congratulations on Shatner and also on the work with The Post and all that over the years. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks, Jordan. I really appreciate that. It's always, always nice to talk to you, and, and I really enjoy these, these discussions. Always great to talk with Michael Starr, the celebrated reporter for The New York Post, author of many great books, including his latest called Shatner. Thank you again. We present a new podcast each and every week featuring interesting people, creative people, and what I hope is intelligent, inspiring conversation. This is Jordan Rich. Until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care. 